you. Susan, whoever brings a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, thank you indeed. Thank you. Um, it is good to be with you again this morning. I'm always excited uh, by what God is doing in our church and what He is going to do in the months and years to come. Uh, we have a lot happening these days. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but there's a lot going on uh, that God is doing through you. Uh, we've got Awana going full steam. Uh, we still need, if I'm, uh, if I'm not incorrect on this, uh, a few more committed workers so that we can encourage the kids to bring their friends. Uh, we're, we're seeing success with that at youth group. A lot of the kids are bringing friends, and we are growing in the number of kids who are participating in youth group. Um, the elders and I have been hard at work, as they mentioned, on our 2013 budget and also on identifying and interviewing a man for our new associate pastor. Uh, that is going well. Uh, it could go a little faster, but, um, but we're doing this, going as fast as we can. Um, the women are studying the Bible and mentoring young moms. Uh, some of you men are getting together with me and preparing to start a men's fraternity this next year. And by the way, if you'd like to be involved with that, see me, uh, see Jeff Dunbar, see Clyde Campbell, see Marty Davis. We'd love to have you join us on Fridays here and have some coffee and and talk about how we might impact the men of our community. Uh, new members are joining all the time. Our missionary efforts are be bearing great fruit across the country and around the world. And this is a good church family to be a part of. Amen? And I'm excited to be part of it with you. It's, it's fun. It really is. It's a great time. I, I, have, I have the best job. I really do. Uh, and I even get paid. How about that? I get paid to do what I would do for free. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> you know what? Let's talk. <laughs> All right? Might need some way to feed my family, but, uh, but in the interim, this is a good thing, right? Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 42. Yes, sir. Oh, no, I have not forgotten. <laughs> uh, you know what? I have forgotten that. Um, but Jesse and Kara have had a new baby, and I, will, I, have, I have forgotten some of, some of what I was supposed to do this morning in dedicating their little girl, and we will do that next week um, uh, because I don't have what I need up here in front of me. Uh, and I apologize. I repent in dust and ashes. I, I do. I would pull my hair out, but I don't think any will grow back. Um, one of the great stories of Western culture uh, is about getting even with your enemies. About getting even with your enemies. It's called The Count of Monte Cristo. If you've not read it or seen the movie, you need to do this. Um, in the days after Napoleon, there's a young man named Edmund Dantes, and he is at the pinnacle of his young life. Uh, he is about to get married to a beautiful young woman named Mercedes, and uh, she is a, a young woman of exceptional grace and beauty. 
and he is just about to be appointed captain of his own vessel in this prosperous trading company. And his pathway seems just golden, and his future is bright, and everything is opening up to him in these broad vistas of excellence. But he has three young friends that are jealous of all that is laying out before his life. And so he is framed for treason and condemned to life in prison at the Chateau d'If, which is a nasty prison for political prisoners. And he spends 13 years there, and while he's in prison, he befriends a guy named the Abbe Feria, the mad priest of the Chateau d'If. And the priest teaches him to read and gives him an education. And he also gives him insight into how he got there because for the entire time that he's been tried and arrested and been in prison, he has no idea. How did I wind up here? And the priest gives him insight into how his friends set him up and put him in this prison. But he also tells him of a fabulous treasure on the island of Monte Cristo. And if he will help him escape, because the mad priest is tunneling out, if he will help me escape, then I will take you to that treasure. Well, after 13 years, the tunnel is still unfinished, and the mad priest becomes sick. And as he is dying, he tells young Edmund where the treasure is. Edmund is, makes his escape by hiding in the burial sack of the mad priest and is thrown out of the prison, off the wall, into the river that runs alongside it and makes his way to the island of Monte Cristo where he finds this fabulous treasure. And he becomes wealthy beyond imagination And he rises in Parisian society and has unlimited power and unlimited wealth. And as he's had 13 years to plot and plan, and now he has unlimited power and prestige and wealth, he begins exacting exquisite revenge. Perfect poetic justice against every person who conspired against him. They go into the... And just after he... By the way, this is the the best part. Just after he gets his revenge, he reveals his identity to the person that he has ruined or robbed of their freedom or their money or their beloved... And it's a great story. If you like the the book or the movie, Les Miserables, you know, Victor Hugo's just sprawling epic of all these people in French life at a time of revolution, that's a great story too. That story is about grace and about how people respond to grace in various ways, either positively or negatively. This story is about justice and about justice being done and the love of seeing it done. And if that beats in your heart as well, you'll love this story. You've got to rent this movie. This is a great stuff. Uh, now, 
The reason I bring all this up is because, interestingly enough, it's been about a 13-year span that Joseph has been in Egypt. He is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, spends time as a slave, then is falsely accused of, of attempted rape, is cast into prison, and finally makes his way out. And when he gets out, he rises to become the grand vizier of all Egypt, second in command only as it respects the throne to Pharaoh himself, who is the ruler over what is then the known world. And then a famine hits. About seven years into Joseph's power, And his brothers here before him, coming to buy food. What's going to happen? Let me ask you, what would you do? You've got unlimited power, unlimited wealth, and the men who ruined your life stand before you. Prostrate. Begging food. What are you going to do? Are you going to give grace? Are you going to say to yourself, after all this time, I spent 13 years as a slave and in prison, and for the last seven I finally ruled. It's been 20 years. Is that 20 years going to have produced a better person? Or a bitter person? What do you think? Let's find out. Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now these five verses have some pretty interesting little bits. Uh, Jacob's sons are now all long since grown men. Even Benjamin, the youngest, is a man of his twenties. Yet Jacob speaks to them all like they're all still children. Why are you looking at each other? Get busy. Go get us some food. Go down to Egypt. And that tells us, I think, something important. Uh, Joseph's brothers are not leaders. They're called by God to be founders of 12 tribes that God is going to use. But none of these men are leaders. They're just passive. They've grown up in wealth. They're used to having things go their way. And so when things do not go their way, they don't know what to do. And so the old man is kind of still ordering them around. Go down and get us some groceries. You think you guys can handle that? Okay, Dad. And these are, some of these men are in their, in their 40s or even 50s. And yet... They're just kind of passive. 
Jacob has to prod them into action even to save their own lives. And notice something else. When it comes to sending a delegation, Jacob does not send Benjamin. It's hard to know exactly what his motivation is for not sending Benjamin. And I don't know that he ever learned until he, he himself actually gets to Egypt why, uh, what happened to Joseph really. But I think in some sense he blames these older ten boys for Joseph's death. And he knows his boy's character, so even though there's no indication that he knows really what happened to Joseph, he knows enough that these boys cannot be trusted to look after Benjamin, who is the only son that's left of the only woman he ever loved, even though he was married four times. Let's continue on. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies! You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they, and they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. When, we, when he begged us and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. 
At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this God has done to us? Now, Joseph's brothers do not know this, but as those beeping messages you get on TV and radio say, this is a test. This is only a test. And praise God, because Joseph has sufficient power and authority to do to them whatever he wants. And I think what he is trying to discern is whether or not their hearts have changed. And if not, to try to awaken their consciences to the sin they have done to him and what it was like. And so, as this text says, he recognizes them immediately, but they don't recognize him. And they probably shouldn't. Because, first of all, he's dressed like an Egyptian, and he speaks in Egyptian. And besides that, they know he has been sold into slavery. So the last place they would expect to see him is sitting on the throne in front of them. That happens to me sometimes where I run into somebody that I know I should know their name, but it's out of context, and their hair maybe has changed, or maybe it's been several years, and I go, I know I should know that person. You know, didn't we go to different schools together? You know? Did you walk to school or carry your lunch? No, I rode the bus. You know, I, I mean, I, 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 you just your brain just doesn't wrap around it, right? And they don't recognize him, and and they're not expecting to see him, but he recognizes them, and he accuses them four times of being spies, four times. He says, no, the only reason you're here is to see where the weak points in the land are, to see where the land lies naked before you, where it's not covered with protection, and you're looking for the spots. And you're here ostensibly to buy food, but really you're looking to bring in some foreign army and conquer. Because Egypt is the only place in the world that has food at this point, it makes it not just a place to visit, but also a target. And look at the, what the brothers say in response. What do they say? We are honest men. We are honest men. Can I just go on record and say that's debatable? <laughs> These ten guys have been lying to their daddy every day for the last 20 years. Every day. And none of them have cracked to this point. None of them have said, you know, Dad, remember that story we told you about the coat and with all the blood on it and all that? That was just a big, fat whopper. Well, what really happened? What actually happened is that we sold your son, the one whom you loved, the one who was the oldest boy of the woman you loved and the only woman you ever loved of all of our mamas. We took that boy and we sold him cheap as a slave to Egypt. But none of these guys is ever conscience-stricken. Never. But that they stand before the guy who is second in command to the Pharaoh and they say, we are honest men. Okay. 
And so Joseph comes back with, uh-uh, you're spies. Right? Four different times. He locks them up and tells them, you can choose one of you to bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, back. And if he doesn't come back with you, then I'll know for sure that you're our spies. And the implication is the rest of you are going to be put to death. You've got to give evidence that your story is true and checks out, so bring me the twelfth brother. And Joseph gives him three days in the pokey to think this over. And at the end of three days, he lets them out and tells them, you can, I'll keep one brother in custody until you all come back, and that would prove that you're not spies. Now, remember that these men had thrown Joseph into a pit, into a dry cistern, and they wouldn't let him out. No matter how much he cried and begged for release, they wouldn't let him out. That's pretty cold-hearted. And he cried and he mourned. And remember how Joseph mourned for Joseph. I mean, for how Jacob mourned for Joseph. He mourned him every day. Neither of these things awakened their conscience, though, to the evil they were doing and had done. And now the shoe is on the other foot. And Joseph's test is starting to awaken in them the guilt they should feel over all that they've done to Joseph. And it starts to rise to the surface. Now Reuben, being the oldest brother, immediately starts whining. He says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I don't know if his voice really sounded like that. But certainly that's what he says. Okay. I told you so. I told the rest of you. You should have listened to me. I am the oldest. I told you not to sin against the boy, and now we're in the reckoning. And they, all of a sudden, all that guilt is like, ooh, it's right there. And they feel it. Because all of a sudden, they're in Egypt, in prison, under captivity. The same thing they sent their brother to go experience. And while they're arguing and feeling convicted, Joseph is listening, and they don't know that he can understand them because he's got an interpreter that he is speaking to them through. So Joseph has Simeon bound and thrown in prison, and then he has all the brothers' grain sacks filled up and their money put back in the top so they'll find it right away as soon as they open it. And that puts the brother in the brothers in a real fix because if they return home with their silver and the grain, it makes them look even more like spies. Because it makes it look like, well, we're not really paying you, we're stealing that stuff. We just had to have some silver with us to make it look good. And when they discover the money in the first brother's sack, they are stricken. And they say, look what they say. What is this God has done to us? They have the distinct feeling that God who has waited 20 years to bring justice on them is doing so. And they think, you know what? Simeon 
probably not coming home from Egypt. And the famine is still going. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, (coughs) sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son will not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make. You would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now picture this scene. Ten boys go out. Nine come back. If you're Jacob, what are you thinking? The last time all you boys were together, you came back one less. Now all of you are together on a journey down to Egypt, and you come back one less. What is going on? What is going on? Jacob naturally wants to know what happened, so they tell him about Joseph and being accused of being spies, and that they had to leave Simeon in an Egyptian prison just to get out. And that the only way they, to prove that they weren't spies that the Lord of the land would accept was to bring back Benjamin on the next trip. And at this point, I think Jacob more or less assumes that Simeon is gone. I just need to write that off because I don't think Simeon is getting, is getting back here, is what he's thinking. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more... He thinks Joseph is dead. And Simeon is no more, because he thinks Simeon is effectively dead. And, and you're going to take Benjamin now? No. Every time I trust you guys with anybody, they wind up dead. He's an old man. And Benjamin's departure could very easily mean Benjamin's death. And And Benjamin's death would mean that everything that he had left of his relationship with Rachel, who is also dead, would be gone. And that's why he says, even though he's got ten sons that are still alive, nine that are still with him, plus Benjamin, 
He says he is the only one left. Because favoritism has never quite died out in Jacob's heart. And so Reuben steps up and says, Well, I will personally guarantee Benjamin's safety, even at the cost of my son's lives. But as we all know, nobody listened to Reuben the first time with Joseph. Remember? In fact, he felt it really important and good timing to say so here in this chapter. Nobody listened to me. You guys had just listened. We wouldn't be in this mess. And, and that's where the story ends for this week. Is with Joseph uh, in Egypt, having one brother in captivity, ten other brothers back in Israel with Jacob. And they have essentially written off the captive brother. But the famine keeps going, and God is going to use that. But Jacob, thinking that he's going to die if anything happens to Benjamin, yet the, fa- the famine is going to go on for five or six more years after this. Well, what's going to happen? As they used to say when I would watch Batman, tune in next week. All right? In the meantime, let's focus on what we might learn about forgiveness and justice and grace from this passage. Because God is using this, I think to some degree in spite of Joseph, God is using this to bring about, is using what, is, what Joseph is doing as an instrument of grace, not just, in those, not just in those brothers' lives, but in Joseph's life too. And they're right to ask, what has God done to us? Because God really is at work. He is working. He's using, he's work, he's using Joseph's administration of justice, which these brothers richly deserve. Can we all agree on that? These guys deserve whatever they get. But he's using it as an instrument of his grace to bring about repentance in these brothers, so that real forgiveness can occur. Because real forgiveness always requires acknowledgement of your sin, and thus repentance to achieve. Right? You can forgive somebody, after all, of the hurt that they have caused you, and decide in your own heart not to hold it against them. But in order for the relationship to actually be healed, they have to repent. Right? They have to come to you and say, by the way, men and women, those of you who are married, those of you who are not married but would someday like to be, the three best words in the English language are these. I was wrong. Okay? Say it with me. I was wrong. Okay? Now, you know, they're far better than I love you. Trust me, you've been married longer than 10 minutes. You know this, <laughs> all right? Nothing says I love you quite as clearly as I was wrong. Please forgive me. Those are the next three, okay? Because real reconciliation can't take place without an admission of sin. And since the Bible tells us that we are all sinners, I don't know why, but we all have trouble with that. 
right? The fact that we are sinners, we know that theologically, but practically we live as if that were not true. And when our spouse or somebody else or, or, or our boss or somebody we're in relationship with says, hey, what you are doing to me does not feel good. It hurts, etc., right? We are so reluctant to let the words come out of our mouth. I was wrong. But without that, it's hard for real forgiveness in terms of reconciliation to ever take place. But God is using this. And we're going to see it unfold in weeks to come. For those brothers to really repent and really understand what it is they've done and all the repercussions of it. And God is going to use it as an instrument of grace to bring about reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers and Jacob and his sons. It's, it's going to be a neat thing how it all works. Uh, God is not only, by the way, going to break these brothers of their hardness, but he's going to break Joseph of his hardness toward them. And he's actually going to break down, and you're going to see it happen as reconciliation and forgiveness takes place. And it's a beautiful thing. It really is. If you're wrong, say so. Say so. Okay? Don't do what these brothers did. Cover up your stuff and go, we are honest men. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? Oh, I cannot tell a lie. I just did. Uh, <laughs> right? If you're in the wrong, say so. And if you've been wronged, forgive. And let God's grace work out justice and grace. Right? Let's pray.